Is something alive up there? Methane on Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Something is creating natural gas on Mars. Is that something alive? Or is this a geological process? No one would like the answer more than Michael Muma, leader of the team that discovered and localized methane plumes on the Red Planet. He's our guest on today's show. Bill Nye is back with thoughts about Hayabusa, the little Japanese asteroid probe. Emily Lakdawalla also returns to answer a question of yours about Venus. And way down the line, Bruce Betts and I will give antimatter its due as we find out which of you is the winner of another space trivia contest and explore the night sky. Were you looking forward to the next space shuttle liftoff? Well, keep looking. NASA has announced that Discovery's mission to the International Space Station must be delayed again as they continue to work on a problem with some critical fuel valves. No new launch date had been named as we finished this week's show. Speaking of NASA, the agency has just signed a deal with the European Space Agency for joint exploration of Jupiter and its moon Europa. The mission won't happen till about 2020. It'll be followed by a similar shot at Saturn and Titan. Details are at planetary.org. Here's Bill. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the planetary guy here, vice president of the Planetary Society. And this week, another remarkable thing happened fantastically far from Earth. The Hayabusa spacecraft, which is a Japanese spacecraft, launched in 2003. And it's had all kinds of trouble. It's had fuel leaks, set it spinning, they stopped the leak, another leak happened, it was spinning the other way. They gave it a gravity assist with the Earth, they sent it past the moon. Anyway, it went out to this asteroid, Itakawa, and it tapped it. And it's presumed that it knocked up some asteroidal material and scooped it up in this kooky little basket. Well, here's the thing, my friends, it's on the way back. So this mission has been underway for six years, and it's got another year to go before it parachutes onto the continent of Australia. Now, here's the thing. It's been using an ion drive, like like in science fiction movies. It uses xenon, the same gas that makes the bright blue light in a, a flash system on a camera. Well, it squirts that gas out the back at a very, very high speed, but a tiny amount of it for hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years, 31,000 hours. And this thing is finally on the way back. And pretty soon, we may have our first piece of an asteroid. Once again, my friends, we will learn something about our place in the universe. We will learn a little bit more about where the Earth came from, where these asteroids came from. Why didn't they accrete into a big planet? Why did we have the dumb luck to be on a planet with liquid water? All these fabulous questions can be chipped away at, pun intended, with the Hayabusa spacecraft. And Hayabusa means falcon in Japanese. And here's to a safe, soaring home. I gotta fly, Bill Nye the Planetary Guy. By the way, have you caught Bill's great TV show? It's called Stuff Happens, and it runs on the Planet Green Network. I love it. 
You probably heard the announcement a few weeks ago, or maybe you read the story at planetary.org. A team of planetary scientists has found three separate plumes of methane emanating from the surface of Mars. It's one more tantalizing bit of data that is consistent with biological activity underway right now on the planet, or at least not too far in the past. But there are other possible sources that don't depend on the presence of life. Michael Muma led the team that found the plumes. He directs the Goddard Center for Astrobiology and is a senior scientist at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. We got him on the phone a couple of days ago for a conversation about this discovery. Mike, that was a very exciting announcement made by uh, your team a while back, these uh, methane plumes on Mars. Something, though, that you folks have been working on for, for years. Matt, we, we actually started this investigation uh, back in 1989 mm. using a, an instrument at the Kitt Peak National Observatory in uh, Tucson, Arizona. And that uh, instrument wasn't sensitive enough to make the detections. We had to wait another 10 years until the uh, instrumentation did become available and we were able to resume. I guess this is uh, the best possible evidence that there's still a heck of a lot we can learn about distant places without actually having to send a probe there. Of course, you did use some of the most powerful instruments on this planet. Well, we did. In fact, uh, we used the uh, Keck telescope, uh, Keck 2 in particular, one of the two uh, twin uh, uh, 10-meter telescopes in Mauna Kea. Uh, But most of the observing was done with the NASA infrared telescope in Mauna Kea, which is a relatively small one these days, uh, only three meters in diameter. Hmm. But uh, nevertheless, these uh, have very powerful instruments connected to them, and the combination uh, has really made them uh, much larger than they would have been seemed as little as 10 years ago uh, because of these very powerful instruments that essentially increase the aperture of the telescope by a large amount. How were you able to localize this search to certain sections of the planet? Well, what we do is we place the entrance aperture of the spectrometer. This is The aperture is a long uh, slit, essentially an opening between two parallel razor blades, if you like. We normally orient this north-south along the planet's uh, meridian, uh, and then the slit width defines the location of light that's sampled on the planet itself. So uh, we see regions ranging all the way from the northern limb of the planet, the most extreme uh, portion we can look at, uh, to through the equatorial zone uh, as one proceeds downward along the slit, and then finally uh, exits at the south limb. And at the same time, uh, the light is uh, diffracted and it's uh, re-imaged onto a two-dimensional detector array in the uh, focal plane of the instrument, And this gives us the ability to measure a spectrum at each discrete uh, little aperture along that slit. So, for example, uh, when we look at Mars and it's uh, approximately seven arc seconds in diameter, we would obtain about 35 individually measured spectra uh, at points along the slit from north to south. And this means you're basically measuring uh, the intensity of the light or the amount of methane carbon dioxide or water, whichever molecule we're looking at, at these different positions in latitude going from north to south on on the planet. Of course, if the planet is rotating and we take slit slit spectra at uh, sequential times, 
then we're basically sampling different uh, areas of the surface as they move under the slit. And so in this way, uh, we can then build up a two-dimensional map, and one in longitude and one in latitude, by combining the temporal series uh, with the uh, series uh, along the uh, slit itself. And so in this way, we can map the planet over a period of perhaps uh, five or six hours, we might uh, map as much as uh, 60 or 70 degrees of longitude. Hmm. Obviously, you discovered this activity, and it was localized, and we will link to both your website at uh, Goddard and to an excellent article by my colleague Amir Alexander that talks uh, a little more in depth about how this took place. Uh, were you surprised that you were able to find not just the presence of methane, but these uh, so-called plumes? The big surprise was finding that there were discrete regions uh, that appear to be releasing methane in, into the planet's atmosphere uh, and at particular seasons. Uh, we had thought that we would be able to detect methane itself, but we did not expect uh, to see uh, these uh, active regions. And in particular, the plumes, and by the way, for your listeners, I should say that when we speak of a plume, we are not talking about uh, something like a small geyser. We're talking hmm. about a pollution plume that, such as you might see over a large area downwind from a large city or from a forest fire, uh, which of course we don't have on Mars, but similarly the gases released from these active regions spread out over a large region and create this uh, large uh, enhancement that we call uh, a plume. Uh, so uh, that in itself was very surprising. We did not expect to see this. And yet there it is, as can be seen in, in some of the maps that uh, you were able to put out that, that show in parts per billion the presence of this gas. And you said there were, there were seasonal variations. There are. In fact, we saw these intense uh, areas of release in uh, mid-summer in the north of Mars. This was terrestrial time. It was March of 2003. And then we looked again uh, at a slightly later season on Mars, and we found that uh, most of the methane had disappeared. Uh, that is to say, it had been destroyed uh, in the meantime. Uh, it was a total time that was about one and a half Mars years. So the season then was uh, spring in the northern hemisphere, what we'd call the beginning of spring or vernal equinox here on Earth. So between uh, midsummer and then uh, the following vernal equinox, or early spring, uh, about half of the methane had been destroyed. And this was, again, another surprise. Until that time, we had thought that the um, lifetime of methane on Mars would be on the order of 300 years, uh, which even so is extremely short and would uh, indicate that if you see methane, it had to be released relatively recently, could not be a remnant from the early phase of Mars history. But uh, our lifetime is about 100 times shorter than that, and this implies that there is another process which is destroying methane very efficiently. That's Michael Muma, leader of the team that has discovered three plumes of methane gas on Mars. Our conversation will continue after a break. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the science guy here. I hope you're enjoying Planetary Radio. We put a lot of work into this show and all our other great Planetary Society projects. I've been a member since the disco era. Now I'm the Society's Vice President. And you may well ask, why do we go to all this trouble? Simple. We believe in the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration. You probably do too, or you wouldn't be listening. 
Of course, you can do more than just listen. You can become part of the action, helping us fly solar sails, discover new planets, and search for extraterrestrial intelligence and life elsewhere in the universe. Here's how to find out more. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Is there life on Mars? We still don't know, but the discovery of methane plumes adds one more piece to the puzzle. Michael Muma directs the Astrobiology Center at NASA Goddard. He led the team that used Earth-based telescopes to pinpoint the three sources of this natural gas. Anything special about the uh, locales in which these plumes are located? Well, there are special things about these locales. Um, In particular, one of them occurs over a region called Neely Fossae. There's a major impact basin just north of the equator on Mars uh, called the Isidus Basin. And this basin has a fracture uh, ring around it. We often see these in other impact basins elsewhere in the solar system. And indeed, a portion of this uh, fracture ring uh, has collapsed at one place to form a uh, depressed canyon called the Graben. Uh, And in this Graben, uh, orbiting spacecraft have discovered minerals that uh, clearly indicate they formed in liquid water. So uh, this appears to be a place where serpentine and uh, uh, various carbonates have formed eons ago uh, when liquid water was present. And, of course, with liquid water, one can uh, imagine that there were other things going on as well. Uh, But uh, the big surprise for us was that one of our active regions is centered directly over this uh, graben or this uh, deep uh, cleft called uh, Neely Fossae. Another one was really interesting. Uh, This is a shield volcano, which is somewhat younger than uh, the Neely Fossae formation. It's a shield volcano called Sirtis Major. This uh, is um, about 1,200 kilometers in diameter at the base. That's about uh, 600 miles, maybe 700 miles for those who think in the English system. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in any case... uh, to our great surprise, uh, we thought at first the plume might be centered over the caldera where gases might still be leaking out from deep below. But indeed, it was not centered there. It was centered over uh, the southeast quadrant. So that sent us back to the uh, scientific literature to scurry around and find out what had been uh, learned or inferred about this uh, region of the, of the volcano. And we ran across a paper by scientists from Brown University, which uh, indicated that this particular quadrant of the volcano was very unusual because it seemed to show evidence of uh, extensive collapse of the subsurface. Uh, and this gave rise to surface cracks that were unusual and so forth. So this was uh, an indicator that uh, there were, there were in fact, massive fractures uh, in this quadrant, uh, distinguishing it from the other quadrants and perhaps uh, giving conduits for methane to leak out from mm-hmm. below. The third region, uh, one called Terra Sabai, uh, was actually uh, a region that shows unusual uh, impact craters that have uh, uh, ejecta flow. These are, this is material ejected from the crater itself at impact 
But instead of just being a, kind of a, looking like a um, shatter blanket of rocks, this looks like some, something a slurry or thick, almost liquidous-like structure material flowed outwards and uh, ran down the slopes and formed these very soft-edged uh, so-called lobate deposits. Various scientists have speculated, or, or not speculation, had thought these were related to the ejection of an ice-laden uh, material from the crater uh, that then caused a uh, slurry and, and uh, enabled this material to flow down slope in a very kind of thick and viscous way. So the net information here is that we see methane issuing forth from regions that uh, were once uh, uh, rich in uh, water ice and uh, perhaps uh, other uh, hydrated minerals of that sort. And this, of course, is very interesting and uh, very surprising. We haven't gotten yet to the question that has uh, uh, intrigued so many people since this story came out and put you on a lot of front pages. What's generating this? Is it bio or geo? Well, that, of course, is the $64 question. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the simple answer is that uh, we must uh, follow each of those possibilities and devise tests uh, that could, in fact, uh, clarify which uh, or if what both are in fact contributing. Uh, we really can't identify that we've, uh, or even uh, suggest that we've discovered biology. Nothing could be produced by geochemistry. This does happen on Earth. On the other hand, we, we have other examples on Earth of deep biospheres where biota live, have lived for eons out of touch with photosynthesis beneath the uh, deep uh, gold mines in South Africa, there is a, a community that has been dated uh, anywhere from 20 million to 100 million years in age. Uh, and that community basically lives on hydrogen that has been um, liberated from water uh, trapped in the uh, fractures in the rock. And the water is actually being destroyed by natural radioactivity. And so this forms the ultimate energy source uh, which these microbes use. So uh, what one can do and what we're planning to do is uh, knowing what kinds of chemicals such as uh, higher-order hydrocarbons or isotopic fractions and so on are produced by both biochemistry or by uh, the uh, abiotic means, you can then go and search for those uh, and attempt to address this question of whether... Uh, uh, we see biology at work or uh, geochemistry. But either way, it's a tremendously exciting opportunity because it gives us a window into Mars as an active planet which, in a way that we never had before. Are you uh, providing any advice to the folks who are trying to decide now where the Mars Science Laboratory should set down? Well, we gave them a, uh, we gave the Project uh, Science Steering Group a uh, briefing uh, back in October uh, in advance of our publication to let them know that this was uh, a region of particular interest. Uh, you may know that Nili Fossi was, in fact, uh, one of the five finalists in the uh, landing site selection process. And uh, so we felt this was very important and relevant information. And indeed, at about the same time, the scientists from Brown uh, had made a discovery of carbonates in the same region. Uh, so they also briefed the team. We think it's important now that we have two years' uh, time given to us uh, in the delay of MSL. It could be fortuitous because we can now ask the project team to, re to uh, reconsider their landing uh, strategies and perhaps uh, 
in the most favorable case, we might be able to uh, consider them, uh, consider Neely Fossi again. Mike, we are out of time. Congratulations again on this extremely exciting discovery. And best of luck over the next two years as we prepare for the arrival of uh, the Mars Science Laboratory, hopefully dropping it uh, right into one of these regions where it can uh, hunt around for that source of this natural gas on Mars. Matt, thanks so much for giving me a chance to talk to your audience. I hope they found this exciting as we have. Dr. Michael Muma is director of the Goddard Center for Astrobiology, senior scientist of the Solar System Exploration Division at Goddard Space Flight Center. We'll continue to follow that research both on the Planetary Society website and right here on Planetary Radio, where we are going to return with this week's edition of What's Up? And Dr. Bruce Betts, right after we hear from Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Why does Venus rotate so slowly? The formation of planets was a violent process. The solar system started out as a dusty nebula, where small bodies nucleated and gathered more mass through gravitational attraction. Toward the end of the solar system's formation, there were many more bodies whizzing around than there are now, and enormous impacts were actually commonplace and unavoidable. The Moon's origin is thought to have come from the impact of a Mars-sized body with the proto-Earth, and a giant impact is one possible explanation for the extreme tilt of Uranus. So it's not hard to imagine that two protoplanets could have collided at such an angle that the primordial rotation of the proto-Venus was largely cancelled out or even reversed by the impact. What's much harder to explain, actually, is how Venus could have experienced such a large collision and wound up with absolutely no moons to show for it. According to computer simulations, most large collisions spray ejecta into orbit around the planet, which should coalesce into a moon. And if the moon is orbiting in the same direction that the planet is rotating, tidal effects should cause the moon to move farther from its planet over time, as our own moon has done. Simulations suggest that in order for Venus to have suffered large collisions, which must have happened in order for it to have formed in the first place, it should also have had a moon. So there must have been another late giant impact that acted to reverse the rotation and cause its moon or moons to wind up moving closer to the planet over time and eventually crash into the planet, leaving no trace of their existence. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Well, to the tune of the faint tick-tock of the universe, we are joined once again by Dr. Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. He's on the Skype connection for this week's edition of What's Up. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Yes, time keeps on slipping, slipping, (laughs) slipping. Into the... Is that your atomic clock in the background? (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) It's an atomic clock designed uh, in the late 1800s. Because I can hear the CZ madams going back and forth, 
back and forth. <laughs> I thought it was just me. I thought I was losing it. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us about the night sky. Venus, evening sky, getting lower, but still really easy to check out over in the west. After sunset, it's the extremely bright star-like object. Whole planet party going on in the pre-dawn, but only if you've got a nice clear view to the east, in which case you can see Jupiter, uh, which isn't too hard. It's really, really bright. Uh, below it is Mercury, looking not as bright, but still like a bright star. And then Mars, looking like an even fainter reddish star. Mars will keep getting higher as time goes on. Mercury, we're going we're gonna to lose pretty soon. It's going to dive back down. And Jupiter will get easier. Let's go on to this week in space history. 40 years ago, the uh, successful launch of Mariner 6. Mariner 6, part of uh, three successful flybys of Mars, 4, 6, and 7, and uh, all of them showing us, by chance, the heavily cratered parts of Mars, making us thinking it was boring and uh, really just a bunch of craters. But all that changed with Mariner 9 a few years later. Random Space Fact. Yeah, Skype just doesn't do it justice. Yeah. Binary star systems, of course. Star systems consisting of two stars orbiting around their center of mass, each a companion star of the other. Roughly half the stars in our galaxy are binary star systems or multiple star systems. We thought it was more than half, and now recent research seems to indicate that it's probably a little less than half. But in any case, an awful lot of binary stars out there to go along with all the uh, fabulous single star systems like our own. Trivia contest, we asked you, what is the antimatter equivalent of an electron? And how much energy do uh, they release when the two of them come together? How'd we do, Matt? Everyone knew that the uh, counterpart to the electron is the positron. Some people did say the anti-electron, but that's just not as sexy. <laughs> what, what did throw some people is the energy released. Some people settled for just saying, well, equals MC squared. And, you know, we said thank you for sharing, but that's not an answer, really. But you know what? Almost all the people did let us know that they annihilate each other and release, well, actually two times, what, 511,000 uh, electron volts or just over 1 million electron volts, 1.022 million electron volts. Indeed, totally. Well, Josh Glazer is the guy who uh, whose name came up on random.org this time. Josh Glazer listens to us in Japan. And Josh, I'm so glad he won because he's one of those who gave us much, much more. Bruce, a whole bunch of these guys have way too much time on their hands. They actually derived it. They didn't just look it cool. up. Nice. <laughs> and not only did uh, Josh derive it, but he was joined by a few other people who wanted us to know that if I really wanted to run my cell phone off of this reaction, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd need a few more positron-electron pairs annihilating. In fact, he figured it out as 6.10 times 10 to the 11th, which sounds like a lot. But then he came up with the mass that would be necessary to run my cell phone for one second, 1.11 times 10 to the minus 15 grams of matter and antimatter. And now you I just, could probably carry that around, okay. I probably could, yeah. I, I, you know, maybe some shielding would make it a little bit yeah. tougher in my pocket. Now, is that just to run it for a specific amount of time? That'd be one second. second. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, so you'll need more than that. <laughs> we also had uh, uh, Brent Pantalone. He also derived it. And he mentioned that uh, sometimes uh, positronium is formed. That's a cool word. 
Positronium. <laughs> positronium, which is uh, where an electron is fooled by a positron into thinking that the positron is a proton and forms a little atom called positronium. So we, <laughs> we learn from this that positrons, positrons are devious. Yeah, they're not only dangerous, they're devious. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Keep an eye out, everyone. Anyway, we're going to send Josh a uh, year in space calendar and uh, a rewards card from Oceanside Photo and Telescope. Then uh, let's go on to the next trivia. In the English language, besides Earth, what other planet in our solar system is not named after a Roman god? Not named after a Roman god, huh. English language, besides Earth, planet. Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to enter and uh, compete for a fabulous prize. And guess what? You've got until Monday, March 2nd at 2 p.m., Pacific time to get us that answer. We're out of time. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about your favorite video game. Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. You'll find him in this world and the virtual ones here on What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week. 